Uh, this is always a uh, challenging holiday of which to uh, sort of greet you. Uh, today is Memorial Day. We often are, are led to say Happy Memorial Day, but certainly today we remember those that gave their lives uh, for our nation, um, numbering nearly a million people over the years that have uh, died on behalf of our nation, and certainly we're grateful for that. We know we have freedoms uh, that were bought with the blood of others, and uh, we rejoice in that. We complain a lot, and I think that's because we're so free that we feel we have the liberty to, uh, to do so, but we are certainly grateful for those that went before us to secure our liberties. Let's pray together. Father, we do acknowledge that in the history of the world, we are perhaps uh, the most free people that have ever lived. And uh, we're grateful for that, and we want to use that for good. And so we ask continually that you would direct our steps as individuals, as families, as a community, as a nation, Lord, that you would go before us. Father, on behalf of our nation, I confess uh, we have drifted from you. We have gone our own way. We have fancied in our own ideas. And increasingly, Lord, we see the ramifications of that. And Lord, as we look around us and the problems facing our nation, many people now are talking and debating as to what would solve them or what would be the solution. And it's, not, it's hard for us not to conclude anything that is being suggested is just a Band-Aid. Lord, I, I know, we know that it's the pouring out of your Holy Spirit in revival that will save this nation. And Lord, sometimes we say that and we think uh, it's almost wishful thinking, but you've done it before, Lord. And we certainly believe that you can do it again. We pray that you would pour out your spirit on our nation and bring many to eternal life. We pray that you would use your word this morning to convict our own hearts change and revival, all those things, it begins in our own hearts, in your church. And so we pray that you would stir our hearts this morning through the study of your word. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Well, we are in uh, the book of Acts. You can go ahead and turn there. We're in Acts chapter 22, wrong glasses. I'll remind you... Uh, a little bit so you have a sense of where we are in our study. It's been two weeks with Kevin uh, preaching last week on spiritual warfare. Thank you, Kev. So I'll remind you that we've been tracking with the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Third missionary journey, uh, pretty much the second half of the book of Acts is a look at the life of the Apostle Paul. And in this third missionary journey, he made it to the area of Asia Minor, today Turkey. He made it to uh, so southeastern Europe, and he ministered there. The majority of his trip on this third uh, missionary journey was in the city of Ephesus. But that trip came to an end, and Paul 
rounded up the trip, not by going immediately home. He was living at the time in Syria, Antioch. But he first wanted to go to Jerusalem. And he wanted to celebrate the feast. And knowing Paul, he wanted to have one more opportunity to reach the Jewish people. And so eager to return, that's what he did. He made it back there. You can read the account yourself. We did it already, Acts chapter 21, Acts chapter 22. But what we discover is Paul finds himself standing in the temple with the opportunity uh, to address all of the people that gathered, the priests, the religious leaders, the worshipers, everybody that is there. Paul finds himself with this opportunity, and he takes the opportunity to share his personal story, how he, who he was and now who he is, how his life was changed. Every one of us has a story. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the pinnacle of that story, what your entire life was moving toward was the day that you came to faith in Jesus Christ. That's why you were created. You were created, every one of us was, to be in right relationship with God, and that only happens through Jesus Christ. And so when you come to the faith, that's the culmination of your life. That's why you were born. And that's what God was bringing you to. And God brought Paul to himself as he was on a road to another city altogether, the road to Damascus. And his life was never the same. And here now Paul has this opportunity and he takes this opportunity to address those that are in front of them. And we pointed out he did so in their own language. He connected with them in their heart language. He told them in Acts chapter 22 verse 3 about how he was a Jew, how he was from Tarsus in Cilicia. They would immediately know, wow, this is a sort of a well-educated Jew. This is a fellow who comes from sort of the upper echelons of society. Paul also told them how when he was a young man, he came to Jerusalem, sent there by his family, and he sat at the feet of one of the most respected Jewish rabbis of that day and even today in Jewish history, a man by the name of Gamaliel. And how Paul sat there and he learned Judaism at the feet of one of the strictest rabbis in Judaism. And again, these folks here were saying that Paul, or people in the community were saying that Paul was against the Jews. Paul was trying to destroy Judaism. Paul's point is, I'm not anti-Jewish, as some are suggesting. I'm very familiar with the Jewish faith. I know what it means, Paul said, to be zealous for God, even as the people in front of him were zealous for for God. He says that in Acts 22:3, I was trained at the feet of Gamaliel, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I appreciate that. Remember, these people had been violent with Paul just a few moments earlier. And Paul's not so much angry with them, mad at them. He understands them. I was where you were. He too was zealous for God and did things like they were doing to him. As we learned, it's possible to have a zeal for God, but to be wrong in that zeal. There are some Catholics in the world that crawl on their bloodied knees to a statue of a saint. Those individuals certainly have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. There are folks in the Muslim religion that blow themselves and others up for their God. They have a zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. And here in this passage, we see a group of zealous Jews that believed they were accomplishing the will of God when, in fact, they were directly opposed to the will of God. 
And in all of that, perhaps no one could understand this more than the Apostle Paul, because he had once been exactly where these people were. There was a time in his life where he persecuted Christians, even as these folks are persecuting him. And it's the reason why Paul could not could write, not just from a head knowledge, but from a heart and an experiential knowledge, these words found in the book of Romans. He said this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Jewish people is that they will be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they do not submit to God's. Again, I'll read a portion of it. He said, I bear them witness. He's saying, look, I have been where they are, and I have done what they are doing. He understood them. Paul's listeners hung on his every word, it seems. A great hush had fallen over the crowd. They listened to every word that Paul was sharing as he told his story up until Paul uses one word. And it's the word Gentiles. And the passage, and we read this last time we were together, the crowd turns suddenly violent once more. Just as he mentions the word Gentiles, I suspect he, he couldn't even get the full word out. Acts twenty two twenty one. it says this. This is his last sentence before the chaos ensued once more. It says, and God said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And he doesn't get a chance to finish, I think. And the people start screaming and freaking out and yelling and pressing and pulling. Verse 22 of the passage says this, Acts 22, 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and they said, notice, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. My goodness. Kill him because he went to minister to a people that were different from them? Well, that's their thinking. The Jewish leaders so despised the idea that the Gentiles could be made, made right with God without first becoming good, practicing Jews themselves that their plan, that the idea infuriated them, and their plan is to kill Paul and any other fellow away with, it says, such a fellow, anyone else that would do this sort of ministry. Just as soon as Paul makes mention, they boo him down, they shut him down. They say, away with such a fellow. Now, I have to imagine, if Paul was anything like any of us, this must have been a terrifying experience for the Apostle Paul. Now, of course, on his way to Jerusalem, people were warning him, don't go to Jerusalem, bad things are going to happen to you when you get there. And Paul, at those times, he said, look, I'm ready to die for Christ. I, I have found... It's a lot easier to say I'm ready to die for Christ when I'm sitting at a picnic with my friends. It's a lot harder when it looks like it's about to happen. And so I have to imagine that this was a somewhat terrifying experience for the Apostle Paul. You can only imagine hearing words like that from an angry mob saying, away with such a fellow being directed toward you. And just then, as Paul is processing these people about to kill him, Paul hears another voice, and it's a voice that ordered that he be taken out of the mob or out of that little area where the mob was gathering or has gathered. 
And this is the voice of the Tribune. We've been introduced to him before. We'll learn his name in the next chapter. His name is Claudius Lysias. And the Tribune, or the commander, who had previously given Paul the opportunity to speak to this crowd, now jumps in and he says, get him out of there. Specifically, we begin reading that in verse 23. Would you please look at Acts chapter 22, verse 23 and following. It says, now as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched Paul out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and yet uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune. He said, What, you, he said, what, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. And so the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, Yes. And the tribute answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum of money. And Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. And so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Now there's some historical information in there uh, that is important for us to kind of unpack a little bit. First off, it's a very interesting exchange. You have the tribune, the commander, he granted Paul permission to address the crowd. He heard Paul talk to him in Greek, realized that he wasn't who he thought he was. He had thought he was an Egyptian uh, rebellion leader. What's that called? Insurrectionist. Realizes, he says, oh, you know Greek? Realizes he's a well-educated individual. Draws a conclusion. Well, I'm sure if we can settle things down, Paul could address this crowd and everything will be fine. That, as the circumstances now make clear, was not how things turned out. And instead, after addressing the Jews in a language, remember that the tribune probably didn't know. Paul addressed the Jews in their heart language, which was not Hebrew, but Aramaic. And he may have known a few words here and there, but not really everything that Paul was saying. Things now only appear to have gotten worse, just as the tribune is sort of watching this. It seems like everything has gotten worse. And so his solution, I got to get this man out of here. I got to get him away from this angry Jewish mob. I'll bring him back into the, the barracks. We know that on the Temple Mount in the uh, northwest corner of the Temple Mount is what was known as Antonia's Fortress. And that's where the, the soldiers would sort of gather. I, I kind of picture like, old school firemen, you know, back at the house, you know, with the pole when there's a fire and you come down. They just sort of gather in that space and they wait. If there's ever a need, then we'll be right here. We'll be ready. And so his solution is, I got to get this guy out of the barrack, or excuse me, out of the, the mess into the barracks. So it's just him and us and I can figure out what is going on. Now his plan to figure out what is going on is to brutally beat the Apostle Paul so that he will tell us what is going on. The word that is used there in verse 24, or the phrase is that he be examined by flogging. Now, any of us that have seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, 
you know what flogging is. If you haven't seen it, it's, it's brutal. It's cruel. Many people died while being flogged by the Romans. In our passage, the word whips is used. These were even more than whips. It was a piece of leather like a whip, but embedded into that leather were things like bone and rocks and sharp objects so that when the whip came down upon the person's back, it would sort of wrap around the side, and then when pulled off of them, chunks of skin would come with it. It was very cruel. It was very brutal. And the point will be, probably just one hit with a whip, and Paul will be singing everything that he's done, and the Tribune will have solved this problem, finding out what this guy has done. Remember, the Tribune's chief responsibility there in Jerusalem and specifically here in the Temple Mount was to keep order in the city. And that's not happening. And so he must take this drastic step of ordering Paul to be flogged. Again, flogging was so brutal and so cruel. People died from it. But it was so brutal and so cruel that the Roman government outlawed or made it illegal to flog a Roman citizen unless that citizen had been found guilty of some crime. That's how brutal it was. Now, you're just some Jewish guy in that culture. They don't care. They'll flog them. But a Roman citizen had the right as a Roman citizen not to be flogged unless first found guilty. As a matter of fact, it was illegal even to bind a Roman citizen, put him in handcuffs, so to speak, unless they had first been found guilty. And so here now is the Apostle Paul, as we see in the passage, he has been bound. He, it says that he is stretched out, verse 25, he is stretched out for the whips. What they would do, you can almost picture like a, like a tree stump or a big boulder, a big rock of some sorts. And they would lay the person over that, on their belly, lay them over that tree stump, over that rock, and they would bound their hands sort of in front of them so that the person really couldn't move any longer. They were just stretched out and vulnerable. And then they would flog them or they would whip them. And so that's the situation Paul finds himself in. And as they're getting things going and things are quieting down for a moment or whatever, and they're about ready to do this, Paul, you'll see there in verse 25, he asks the question, which he already knows the answer to. And he says, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Now, class, we know the answer. No, it's not. I just told you. And so Paul asks this particular question, and it freaks out the centurion, the, another commander. Remember, a tribune was a commander of uh, about 600 people. A centurion was a commander of 100 people. And so this is one of those commanders under that particular tribune. And Paul asks of him, is it lawful for you to do what you're doing? Notice what Paul does here. Paul announces his Roman citizenship. At this moment here, Paul stands upon his rights as a Roman citizen. There have been questions that have been raised over the last few years and for many, many years as to whether or not it's right for Christians to stand up for their rights and privileges 
in our case as Americans or from whatever country from which they come? Or should they just simply remain quiet and compliant when our rights as citizens of the nation or any other nation are being infringed upon? Paul's example here tells me that respectfully, there are times when it is appropriate to stand up for our rights as citizens of our nation. Paul, he asked the question, is it proper for you to do this to a Roman citizen? And the commander immediately, the centurion immediately goes to the tribune and he says to him in so many words, you need to be careful what you are about to do because that guy is a Roman citizen. And I imagine the tribune's face turns white, like what? Rushes out there as quickly as he can. Notice verse 27. He says, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul says, yes. Now, Paul could lie, right? Maybe get out of the flogging. They'll figure it out later with, when the paperwork arrives. It was actually a death sentence if you lied about your Roman citizenship. Remember, the Roman Empire had taken over much of the known world and they uh, subjugated, or I think that's the word, they subjugated the people uh, of the places that they attacked. Some of those people became Roman citizens, like Paul. Many of them didn't. And there were different rights. If, if you lived in the same community and you were a Roman, you had different privileges and rights than maybe your neighbor who was not a Roman citizen. And if you were to lie about being a Roman citizen, the penalty was to be put to death. And so nobody lied about being a Roman citizen, even in a situation like this. And so Paul, he says yes, and immediately the man is going to take him at face value. He goes on to say to him in verse 28, I bought this citizenship for a large sum of money. I became a citizen. Remember, Claudius Lysias, we know by that uh, that he was, well, I don't know it. People know it, and they tell me, and I believe him, that he was a Greek. And so he became a Roman by buying his citizenship, as he tells us here in verse 28. He says, I bought this citizenship for a large sum of money. And Paul, almost as if he has like a, a higher card in the deck, he says, yeah, well, I was born a citizen. All my life I've been a citizen. I never knew a day of my life not being a Roman citizen. There were three ways to become a Roman citizen in that day. One is you could have done something great for the empire, and the emperor declared you were a citizen of Rome. And so it was sort of uh, afforded to you or decreed that you were a, a citizen. You could become a Roman citizen because your father was a Roman citizen. That's how it seems Paul became one, or it is how Paul became one. And then the third way you could become a Roman citizen is here, you could pay a large sum of money. And that's what the tribune did. Paul was a Roman citizen from birth. Paul was a very rare individual. He was educated, highly. He was intelligent. He was a devout Jew. He was a Roman citizen. He spoke multiple languages, at least three. And God used the unique background of the Apostle Paul in a special way to reach the world of his day. And that's the way that God works. God takes our unique backgrounds, our skills, our proclivities, things we just naturally enjoy doing. He takes those things, and if we offer them back to him as the Apostle Paul did, he uses them for his glory to reach other people. Now, truth be told, 
I suspect none of us here, are going to reach the entire world in our lives. Maybe you will. But I'll say this, God can certainly use every one of us here to reach our worlds, our little worlds of the people that we interact with and to come into contact with and have been born into the same families or happen to live in the same neighborhoods with. God can use each one of us and the unique way that he has created each one of us and trained up each one of us to make an impact in these folks' lives. And that's exciting to me because I don't have to be something different than who I am. I just have to tune into what God is doing, how God is leading, and make myself available. And it's the same thing for every one of us here. God's plan for reaching this world is you, and it's me. And that's exciting. And so allow God to use you for his glory. Continuing on, please, in verse 29, it says, Now, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid. You can see them kind of backing away. I had nothing to do with it. I wasn't involved. And he realized that Paul, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Notice 29, the tribune was very afraid. That word afraid there, it's a Greek word. It means to be seized with alarm or to be startled by a strange sight or occurrence. You've all had that happen to you where something you weren't expecting is there and you, you freak and you go ninja. Or if you're a man, you're like, oh, I wasn't scared. I wasn't scared. I wasn't scared. My daughter scared me the other day. She, she didn't mean to. She just walked up behind me. Bye. That was my response. <laughs> so I'm very manly. All right, that's what the word means here. The guy is freaked out by this situation. Verse 30, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Now remember, this tribune still needs to know what is going on. He thought he could get the answer by having the guy go out there and talk to them and it'll all be solved. That didn't work. He thought he could bring him back into the barracks, beat it out of him. He's not allowed to do that now. He still has to get an answer. And so what he does is he calls together the Jewish council, commonly referred to as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a collection of 70 men, Jewish men, priests. Some were Pharisees, some were Sadducees. Those are probably words you're familiar with. They sort of served as the, uh, the, the town council, the supreme court amongst the Jews. Now, the Romans were in charge politically, but they gave a lot of privileges and rights and said, all right, you guys can do your own thing, particularly spiritually, particularly around this temple. Do what you need to do. Just maintain order. And so this is the Sanhedrin. Here the tribune realizes, like, I, I guess i got to do this the old-fashioned way. got to have a trial. And they'll present their case. Paul will present his. We'll figure out what is going on. So he orders the Jewish council to meet and for Paul to be brought before them. What's interesting, Paul had actually been a member of this very council. 25 years earlier, before Paul had become a Christian, he was a young member of this council. He had to be at least 30 years old to be a member, so he was at least 30 at the time. It was that council that sent Paul into other parts of the world to find Christians and either make them renounce their faith in Jesus or kill them in some cases or put them in jail. We read about that in Acts chapter 8. 
where Stephen was a Christian and Paul had him or authorized his being executed for being a Christian. Paul was a member of this group. This was a very influential group of people. And in some cases, old friends of the apostle. I don't know about you, I strongly desire to see some of my old friends, people I don't even really talk to anymore, from high school or whatever. I'd love to hear someday that they had come to the faith. And perhaps even that I would be a part of bringing them to the faith. And so Paul sees this, no doubt. Paul was an optimist. We see that in the type of person he was, the places that he went, a realist too, but always an optimist. What God might do seems to be on his heart and mind. And I have to imagine Paul here is thinking, finally, the opportunity of a lifetime. Imagine if I can reach some of these men, all of these men, the 70 of them that are gathered. Imagine how that would change things. I'm wondering, Paul, again, this optimistic kind of spirit, wondering, thinking, this is what God has been doing. This is what he's been bringing me to, to this moment in time where I can proclaim the gospel to this group of people, they'll get saved, and things will be changed forever. Well, that's what he thought. That's not how it went down. The story continues into the next chapter. Would you turn there, please? starts in verse 1. It says, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now, I've said it with a little bit of an attitude. Um, I don't know if that's how he said it. That's how I would have said it. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I do not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Please underline that. Friends, (laughs) we have a tendency in our culture to speak pretty evil of our rulers. But Paul begins, notice he begins by referring to this council as brothers. That's also an indicator that the Apostle Paul had been a member of the Sanhedrin. Because that was a highly inappropriate way to address the Sanhedrin unless you yourself were, or in his case, had been a part of the Sanhedrin. The, there was this long kind of terminology they, they used to use. You can summarize it essentially. If you were addressing them but were not a member of them, you would call them fathers. He calls them brothers, equals, so to speak. And so he begins by calling them brothers. He says, he declares, I have lived my entire life before God in all good conscience. Now, nobody can accurately say that in the sense that I'm perfect. I've never sinned. I've never done anything wrong. That's not what Paul is saying, nor could you ever say something like that. What Paul is saying is this. His point is when his conscience convicted him, he responded to that conviction. Not that he was sinless or perfect, but that he tried to be sensitive to God and God's leading. And if he had done something wrong, well, then he responded by setting things right, both with God and with others. Again, 
Paul is not saying he was perfect. Now, we all know, we can go back and we can look through the passages that Paul had done some very wrong things, correct? He had persecuted the church. He saw that people were killed. Later, he's going to tell us that he dragged some people out and those people, afraid of what was going to happen to him, actually denied Jesus. He forced people to deny Jesus Christ, and many did. Paul had done a whole lot of things that were wrong. But what Paul is saying is, I did those things from a pure conscience. That's a very helpful reminder to us. Because while our conscience is something to which we can and should listen, our conscience is not necessarily an infallible guide to right conduct. conduct. Conscience, it will tell you that you should not do what is wrong and that you should do what is right, but conscience alone cannot tell you what is wrong or what is right. Are you with me? My wife is. Thank you. I don't know if anybody else is. Hopefully so. Our conscience needs to be influenced by something. And many times it's influenced by our world, our family, our upbringing. What our conscience needs to be influenced by is the scriptures. The scriptures need to speak into our heart and communicate to us what is right and what is wrong. The word of of God alone can accurately teach that in all things. And that, combined with the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, will direct our paths and align them with God's ways. But here's Paul. He is saying, to this day, I have lived with a good conscience. Now, that prompts the high priest to command somebody near Paul, punch that man in the mouth. What is going on here? Who's in charge of this place? It's like a zoo here. Fight after fight after fight. The high priest, though, he is infuriated. He's infuriated by the idea that Paul, whose ideas were countered to the members of the Sanhedrin, that Paul would profess to be right with God. Because according to Sanhedrin, we're the ones that are right with God. Not some rebellious, traitorous, ex-council member rabbi like Paul. And so again, he cries out, hit that, strike that man, punch that man, And as we read earlier and chuckled at, Paul says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. I jotted a little note here. Wow, the testosterone is jumping off the page. Uh, This is crazy. (laughs) This whole story and the fighting and the arguing and the yelling with one another. It it, it reminds me, it's a Jerry Springer-like encounter that we find in our Bibles. Now, I imagine I read it to you as if Paul was pretty hot when he said what he said. Obviously, the text doesn't communicate the tone with which Paul said it. He could have said it very, very matter-of-factly. We don't really know, but I imagine he was a little hot when he said it. And he addresses that to the high priest. Notice, he doesn't know it's the high priest yet, but notice what he calls him. He calls him a whitewashed wall. Sometimes in our Bibles, that's listed as or written as a whitewashed tomb. A tomb was a place where they, obviously, they buried their dead. Uh, If you as a Jew would come in contact with the tomb, you would be considered unclean, and that would impact your ability to worship and and do other things and uh, rituals and so on. 
And so what they would do is they would paint the outside of those tombs white. And they basically essentially marked them. You would know that's a tomb right there. And you would walk five feet away from it or whatever it might be. And if there's no reason for you to be near that tomb, you wouldn't go near that particular tomb. Death on the inside, cleanliness, so to speak, on the outside. And that's what Paul is saying to this man. You look great. You got your little outfit on there. You're a ruling council member. You're obviously very religious. You look wonderful on the outside. On the inside is death. He calls him a whitewashed wall or a whitewashed tomb. Now, as we discover in the next verse, he doesn't know who he's talking to. And we don't understand why that is. It could have been a big room. Paul was far back or a big, uh, like a place like this. Paul was far back. There's a, uh, this hint in the Bible that Paul had trouble with his eyes. Some people allocate that to the time that he had the vision of Christ and that that did something to his eyes. And so he just couldn't see clearly who it was. It could be that this is an early morning gathering. And the high priest didn't actually have time to put on all his high priestly garb. It just looks like a regular guy that is there. For one reason or another, Paul doesn't know who he is. When he says to the high priest of the nation of Israel, only one of them served essentially a life term. This is a very unique individual. I forget the number. I think it was like 42 men in the history of Israel, you know, from the Moses to here, has served in that position. You can check that number, but I know it's uh, close to that. And here is Paul calling him a whitewashed tomb. Death on the inside, an appearance of life on the outside. We learn his name in verse 2 is Ananias or Ananias. Ananias was the high priest of Israel, located there specifically in Jerusalem from 47 A.D. to 52 A.D. And historically, he is considered, quote, one of the worst high priests in the history of the nation. Ananias was, would be today considered a multimillionaire. He didn't earn a million dollars a year. The reason why he was considered a multimillionaire is because he earned his money through corruption and graft. And he did so at the expense of the Jewish worshipers. You've probably heard where the Jew, Jewish people would come to the temple to worship offer their sacrifice, they'd bring a lamb of some sorts, and the priest would look at it and say, oh, I'm sorry, that's, that's an unclean lamb. You can't sacrifice that. But we do have some good ones over here that have already been approved. You can buy them. They're only 100 bucks. And you know what? Let me help you out here. You don't want to be dragging this thing around. Let me take that off your hands. I'll, I'll give you five bucks for it. And then they would take that no good lamb, and they would throw it into the pile with all the good lambs that they would sell for 100 bucks. And everybody knew this was happening. Ananias employed that method. And he's making $95 off every person that comes in. And what does that do to the worshiper? I hate going to the temple. I hate dealing with those people. And it can even develop, I hate God. And how many churches have sadly burned people so they want nothing to do with God anymore. That's what Ananias was doing. He was corrupt. He was eventually killed. Remember I told you 47 to 52 AD? He was killed by a group of Jewish nationalists that had enough with him. And so they went and they found him. They put him to death. That's pretty significant. And so here's Paul. Doesn't know who he is, but is remarkably on track or on target with what he says about him. A whitewashed wall whom God was going to judge. Paul says, you sit there and judge me according to the law, 
and then you order that I be struck uh, contrary to that law. Now, we don't know specifically which law Paul had in mind in the Old Testament. It might be Deuteronomy 25, 1, that says this, If there is a dispute between a man and uh, between men, and they come into court, and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes according to his offense. And so that law makes it clear that both guys are innocent, essentially, until it's decided, then you can beat the guilty man. Leviticus chapter 19 says something similar. It says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Maybe that's what Paul had in mind. Either way, his point is obvious. Until he was rightly convicted by this council or by the Romans or by whomever, Ananias had no right to order that he be struck in the face or in the mouth. And so Paul says, you whitewashed tomb, God's going to judge you. And we can imagine in the crowd there was a great gasp when Paul said what he said. Not so much because of what he said, but to whom he actually said it. And verse 4 indicates that. They say, after I assume they gasp, they say, would you revile God's high priest? Now notice Paul's immediate response. He says, brothers, I didn't know that he was the high priest. Be careful here. The fact that this man was the high priest doesn't make his decree right. He was still wrong in doing what he did and saying what he said. So Paul's not saying, oh, I didn't realize the high priest. Go ahead, hit me. That's not what Paul is saying. What the, fa what the fact that he was the high priest did mean is this, is that by virtue of his position, he was to be respected. That's what Paul is pointing out there. And he uses a verse to do so. He says, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So the position of high priest, or in our day, president, governor, council member, is to be honored even if the person holding that position is less than honorable. Or in our day, even if it's someone you didn't vote for. And so be careful, please, with that. Christians, we should be an example to the world for good and not for evil. Be careful what you post on, what do you call that stuff, social media. Be careful how you speak about your elected officials and your leaders. Because even if the person is not honorable, the position is to be honored and is to be respected. And Paul makes that very clear. Going on in verse 6, it continues this way. It says, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council. He said, Brothers, I am a Pharisee. I'm a son of Pharisees. And it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge all three of those things. Then a great clamor arose, 
and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party, they stood up and they contended sharply. They yelled. And they said, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, the commander, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces, commanded the soldiers to get down in there and take him away from among them and by force bring him back into the barracks. I, I really feel for this tribune guy. You know, there's nothing he can do is right. And he's trying, it seems. Now, it seems that Paul's purpose here, it seems, because it doesn't really say, but it seems that he's, it's as if he's read his crowd. He realized he's not getting anywhere with them. And so he tries to raise a wedge issue. He knows that there's some in the group that are Pharisees. There's some in the group that are Sadducees. Very, very different groups of people. All Jewish people, all religious, all kind of ranking members. But the Pharisees were a very strict religious group that, you know, what's it say in your Bible? That's what we believe for the most part. The Sadducees were almost like this intellectual elite group. Yeah, I know it says that. But in our advanced training, we've come to discover that it doesn't really mean that. And so you have these two rival groups there in the Sanhedrin. And Paul knows that a key issue amongst them is the issue of the resurrection. And it seems to me he brings it up so that he can divide these two, perhaps even get one side of the group on his side and get out of there with his life. I don't know that for certain, but it seems to me that that's what's going on here. And so he brings up, he says there in verse 6, it's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm, I am on trial. That's not really anything Paul's talked about during this time here. Now, that's the core of who he is, of course, but he hasn't really brought that up before. And he says, that's the reason why I stand in front of you. And, of course, the Pharisees who wholeheartedly accepted that, we're with you. The Sadducees who rejected that, we're against you. If that was his intention, look at verse 7. It worked. Verse 7, and when he had said this, a dissension arose amongst uh, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The assembly was divided. Look at verse 9. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party, they stood up. They contended sharply. They said, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel did speak to him? He immediately gained the support of the Pharisees. They became an ally. And I picture they began to kind of pull him to their side with one arm. And then the Sadducee says, oh, no, this man's not getting off with this. And they began to pull him because they wanted still to kill him. And Paul is being pulled back and forth. We, I, re, I come to that conclusion. If you look at verse 10, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, he commanded the soldiers, get down there and get him out of there. And Paul is once more, what's this, the fourth time now in the last couple of weeks? Paul is once more now thrown into, or pulled out of there and thrown into a prison cell. Where I suspect the tribune figured, well, look, I can have a one-on-one -on -one with this guy. He seems reasonable. Nothing else I've tried works. Or at the very least, just get him out of there, keep his life, and I'll figure out what to do after a little more thought. Because he couldn't flog him. He tried having him address the crowd, his solution, and put him in prison. And we'll figure it out later. And from this point on, in the rest of the book of Acts, and for the rest of the Apostle Paul's life, 
he will be a man that is a prisoner of the Roman Empire. From this point in his life, first here in Jerusalem, then in Caesarea, which we'll read about in the coming weeks, and then finally in the capital city of the empire, Rome. And his clever ploy, if that's what it was, it, it got him out. It got him away from an angry council. But notice, it did not afford him the opportunity to tell the full gospel to the Jewish people and those Jewish leaders and to see them come to the faith. And that's really what Paul was hoping for and wanted, as we've seen. And so I have to imagine that that night in prison, that Paul must have been feeling pretty bad about things, that Paul must have been kind of alone with himself and his thoughts there, thinking about how his mission and he himself had failed and what it was he wanted to do and what, he was, what it was he thought God was leading him to do. He had failed there in Jerusalem. Paul had had the unique opportunity to preach to the influential Jewish council, and his efforts ended up in a fistfight. Now, of course, I can't get into the head of the Apostle Paul, but I do think verse 11 kind of hints toward what's going on in the head of the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 11. It says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, Paul, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The Lord spiritually comes in a vision, speaks to Paul, and he says to him, Take courage. That tells me that Paul was without courage. Some of your versions, they translate it, because it's a tricky word, translate it in a different direction and say, be of good cheer. We might say, cheer up. That Jesus comes into the room, says, take courage, be of good cheer. Don't be so down, Paul, which tells me that Paul lacked courage and was down, that he was dejected, that he was afraid. I have to imagine that you've at some point in your life felt like you had failed miserably in your efforts to represent the Lord. Anybody else with me? I have done that many times, both in ministry and then also just in my personal Christian life. When I'm trying to kind of reach people and somebody gets on my nerve and Jesus isn't around anymore uh, as far as I don't look very much like him anymore. And then you think everything that I have been working for for a year, for five years, for 20 years at this job that I hate, trying to be a witness that God might use me, I blew it with one outburst or one response or one stupid joke or one inappropriate action. And you go from there and you feel miserable. You feel like you failed yourself. You feel like you failed the Lord. It's an incredibly lonely place. You could have others come up alongside you and say, as Christians, and say, look, I've been there. It's okay. Don't worry about it. But you do. And it's a very lonely situation to find yourself in having failed in that particular way. And I think that's what Paul is going through. Maybe even thinking, if I didn't scream out, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, maybe I'd still be out there talking to these people. Maybe I would have had an opportunity to present the gospel. Paul had failed, at least in his mind. And now, in his mind, he's experienced the consequences of that failure. Now, please notice this. I think it's so sweet. 
in that loneliness, the Lord appears to him. Isn't that awesome? I got the little tingles. <laughs> I hope you do too. But in that loneliness, the Holy Spirit, Jesus here, appears to him supernaturally and he ministers to him in that broken place. He says, take courage, Paul. And then in so many words, he says, you didn't fail. He says, take courage, Paul, you didn't fail. Notice what we read about in the middle of the verse. It says, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. A failure would have thought Jesus was appearing to fire him. Jesus was appearing to, to tell him, you know, I need to get someone more reliable than you. But Paul wasn't being fired. He was being assigned a new mission to a new field. As you see there, he was being sent to Rome. You remember Paul wrote earlier how much he wanted to get to Rome? We looked at that before. But circumstances didn't allow it. Here now the Lord gives him that desire of his heart. And he's going to send him to Rome to testify there, even as he testified here in Jerusalem. That tells me the Lord is saying to him, you were, it wasn't perfect, Paul, but you were effective. You were obedient. You took a chance and did what I asked you to do. Maybe not perfectly, but you did it. And now I need you to go to Rome and do that as well. They will clean a few things up, but overall, do that as well. Notice where the Lord met him in a jail cell. I think that's important. Because oftentimes, in our times of despair, and we cry out to God in prayer, I think that's pretty natural. And our prayer is usually, Lord, deliver me from this jail cell. Deliver me from these circumstances. God, I need you to come and get me out of here. But notice what the Lord does. He comes, he ministers to Paul, and then he leaves. And Paul's still in the same place that he was before. But internally, everything is different. Instead of delivering us from those circumstances, oftentimes the Lord comes and stands with us in those circumstances, ministering to us that we're not alone, but that he's right there with us. And so when our job is precarious and your boss says, hey, Monday morning, would you mind coming in first thing in the morning to my office? And you have to spend the entire weekend wondering Am I going to have a job Monday afternoon? When the bills are piling up, and at first you're like, all right, Lord, you're good. You'll handle it. And then another one, and then another one, and then another one. And now you don't see how it's going to be handled. When your child is sick, this might be the worst. When your child is sick and there's nothing more that you can do. When the longing of your heart that you've been praying for for years isn't met. The Lord comes and he stands with you. And this passage should be a reminder to everyone. Maybe life is great right now for you. Just wait. <laughs> Sorry. And if life is great for you right now, just file this away. In those difficult circumstances, even as he's in the great circumstances, 
the Lord is always right there with you. And even if it was your actions that brought about those circumstances that you now find yourself facing, or if it's simply just because we live in a fallen world and bad things happen to good people and to bad people, we're all bad people. This is what we remind ourselves this morning. The Lord stands right there with us. I don't usually often give homework. I'm going to give you homework. I'm going to recommend every one of us memorize this Bible verse this week. Maybe you already know it, teacher's pet that you are. It says this, Deuteronomy chapter 31, 9. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Or you may say it this way, and I think it's okay to memorize it this way. It is the Lord that goes before me, and he will be with me, and he will not leave me or forsake me. And so I do not need to fear, nor do I need to be dismayed. Amen on that? Paul's service is not over yet. He may be discouraged. He may have thought that he failed. He may have thought there were no results of his time there in Jerusalem. But please always remember this in your life and in Paul's, that the results are not our responsibility. They weren't Paul's responsibility. They're always the Lord's responsibility. Paul's responsibility is to testify faithfully of Jesus. And it's God's responsibility to take care of the results. And so God says to him here, Jesus says, Take heart, Paul. You've testified of me in Jerusalem, and now I'm going to send you to Rome that you might do the same there. Amen, friends? Let's pray. Father, we are, I'm, this morning, I'm humbled by this truth that we have seen. That here we are, fallen people, flawed individuals, less than perfect. We don't always do it the right way. We fail ourselves and sometimes even you, many times you. And yet, you don't abandon your children. And you know exactly what we need and when we need it. And you come and you minister your presence and a word of encouragement, even in the darkest of places. And you've done that with the apostle here. And Lord, I'm sure we could have testimony time and person after person can get up and say, I remember when the Lord did that in my life. Yesterday he did it. Or I can remember a time when he did that. And so, Lord, uh, maybe not new information for most of us, but important information for us to bring back to the forefront of our thinking. Would you stress in our lives by your spirit the reality of your presence? And we would be the better for it, Lord Jesus. Bless your name. Amen. Would you stand with us?